Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, we're very excited today. Who have we got on? We are really excited today. We have Jane Lowe's with us today, who's a historian, author, and blogger. She has published books like The Horsekeeper's Daughter and her most recent book, Above Us, The Stars, a ten, that's 10 Squadron Bomber Command, The Wireless Operator Story, which is fantastic. But we're not doing anything, to, sorry, for just waving that in front of you and then snatching it away because we're doing something I think really interesting because we haven't had nearly enough Australian history yet on History Hack. We're talking about migration to Australia and single women. So, Jane, welcome. Hi, good morning, ladies, and good afternoon. Oh, this is going to be so cool. Yeah, we have completely neglected Australian history, so this is exciting for us, isn't it? I'm very, very excited. So can you set the scene for us? What was it like for single women in Victorian Britain? That is a huge question. It really depends on a, a wide variety of factors, including your age, your location, your social class and your family status. And my work really focuses on working class women and particularly in the northeast of England in, in the mining villages in the 18th, sorry, in the 19th century. Um, there's no factories or, or cotton mills around here. It's all sort of individual mining villages um, so the women would be largely engaged in small cottage industries or working in agriculture perhaps in um, small local shops or in, in looking after their families so a few worked in um, small cottage industries in agriculture retail looking after the family a few worked in local coal mines and associated industries but by far the biggest source of employment for your average working class woman was in domestic service being a servant mm. um, at that time obviously the main concern for most women of lower classes or lower social status was basically keeping out of the workhouse being able to earn enough money um, or enough get enough food so that you didn't have to, to rely on that and for many there, there were only really two main ways to do that and that was being a domestic servant or marriage that was the only way to sort of improve your, your domestic situation now, for those that did go into um, domestic service at that time, lots of them went in at a very young age. So we're talking about girls going into service at around about 13, 14 years old. Um, they will be away from their families largely. Um, they could be sent to towns and sort of anywhere in the country, really. But it's, it's, it will be very rare that you'll be sort of still in the same village or town where your family lived. Um, so can you imagine how difficult that must have been, sort of, you know, going elsewhere in the country or not seeing your family at all at the age of 13 or 14. When we talk about domestic service, we tend to think of life below stairs at Downton Abbey, don't we? It's That couldn't really be further from mm. the truth as to what it was like um, for most women. The vast majority of these girls worked in sort of lower middle class households or in farms, and quite often they would be the only maid um, in, in the property, in, in the house, and they would be responsible for everything. They were literally called maid of all work. 
they would be up at sort of 5.30 in the morning and regularly not get to bed until midnight. They literally did everything. So they would be um, getting up to um, set the fires in the morning, uh, put water on to boil, collect water. Um, if there was no water source nearby, um, they would be doing all the cooking, they'll be doing all the cleaning, all the laundry. It was absolutely just backbreaking work. I'm going to level with you. This is my great-great-grandmother. Is it? Right, And yeah. she's the cliche as well. She uh, yeah. two babies by an unknown father, potentially yeah. someone in the household born in it the will have been. house. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, these girls were so sort of vulnerable and so open to, to abuse, you know, and it's, mm. I'm not saying that happened in, in every case, but it, it certainly was, was very, very common. Yeah. And literally the only time they head off would be a Sunday afternoon. But if you're kind of, you know, 50 miles away from your family or whatever, you can't even go see them. So, yeah, it was horrendous conditions, really. And for many of them, the only way out was marriage. You know, how else do you improve your situation? So you had lots of girls sort of, you know, getting married to the first sort of bloke that, that turns up and then sort of exchanging one life of misery for another, basically. I've got yeah. to say... I I'm don't think so... she ever did marry out. I think she died in a workhouse as well. Did she? Oh, my God, that's horrible. Yeah, one of the children died. My great-grandfather survived. He was a boy soldier in World War One. But, yeah, so yeah. no father's names on the birth certificates yeah. would go. So a period of time in the workhouse over the birth um, and then back to work. God, that's horrendous. But not uncommon, that's the mm. thing. It, it was very common. I've got to so, say, I'm really, really grateful that I was actually born in this time because yeah. I, I can't imagine myself having to go through all that kind of work. I, I think I'd whine and moan through most of it. Oh, you yeah. absolutely <laughs> would whine and moan through all of it. Um, so whine and moan when I do the housework now. So yeah. <laughs> so what is the situation in Australia at the time? Um, and I'm guessing that will lead on, I suppose, to talking about why it was appealing to go. Yeah, absolutely. So. Australia sort of in the mid 19th century is really sort of taking off. Um, when we think about Australia um, in the sort of late 1700s and early, early nine, sorry, 1800s, we tend to think about transportation, don't we? Convicts piling yeah. over there. In what the was that thousands. film with that? Is it Rome, Roma Garage? She was brilliant in it. Which oh, yeah, yeah. Sporting, it and it's basically like a pestle in a hole as she spends the whole film trying to run away from Australia. That's the sort yeah. of 18th century view, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's kind of like the, the, the picture that we have. But in fact, by sort of the mid 19th century, um, well, transportation was coming to an end. That ends in the 1860s, so it's being massively scaled down. But now you've got this sort of um, massively growing population. Um, you've got industry. You've got huge amounts of investment coming into Australia. You've got um, the opening up of the interior, um, all the um, sheep farms and you know and cattle ranches, that kind of thing. Um, you've got railways beginning to spread, and there's huge amounts of money pouring into the country. Um, but it's still very, very sparsely populated. So, for example, um, in 1859, when um, Queensland broke away um, from and New South Wales to form a separate state. There were 25,000 people in Queensland, and Queensland's a bloody big place, you know, mm. so they're very, very sparsely populated. Now, when I say 25,000 people, what I mean is 25,000 white Victorian people. Yes. Yeah. Nobody bothered to count the indigenous population, and they were just completely ignored, or, and basically, well... We, we won't even go there. imperialism, yeah. but we're going to focus on our, we are going to focus on our white people today, but 
we're focusing on the single women, which I think is another important aspect that's overlooked. Yeah. So what happens when you've got lots of money and lots of investment um, piling into into Australia is that you've got a burgeoning middle class. Um, there's a lot of people making a lot of money very, very quickly. And of course, what do middle class people want? They want domestic servants. So there's a huge demand um, for, for the services of, of women and in Australia in sort of second half of, of the, the 19th century. But there's a shortage, a huge shortage of women. And they also you've got to look at what the, the governments of the, the colonial governments are trying to do. They're wanting the, the populations to expand. Now, if you've got sort of 15, 20,000 railway workers, dockers, sheep shearers, farmers, you know, mm-hmm. cattle herders or whatever, they're not going to expand the population by themselves. That no. <laughs> they think women are needed um, to basically breed and, and increase the population. So I think that was the background to the setting up of the of the single um, female migrant scheme. So how did the British actually view immigration at the time? Was it something that they wanted to do or something they didn't want to do? I think attitudes were beginning to change. I think it, it also depended on, on where, you, where you were planning to go. Um, obviously, t- you've got tens of thousands of people heading out from, well, millions even, from, from Europe um, and Britain to and the USA, to Canada, to South Africa. The British Empire is at its height at this point, so you've got people dispersed all over the world. Um, Australia and New Zealand is kind of just beginning to come on stream and sort of like the 1860s, 1870s as a popular destination for, for immigration. Um, obviously, Australia was still very much tainted um, with the, the, the stain of, of, of transportation and, and criminality, if you like. So it, it wasn't really a, a popular choice for, for a long time. As I mentioned, transportation has only ended in the 1860s. Um, so for many Victorians, Australia really was the absolute last place on earth they wanted to go to. Mm. Um, so the, the colonial governments had to make Australia look like an attractive destination for, for would-be immigrants. I think it's important to say, isn't it, that even by the time of the First World War, when you say, like, oh, you're going all the way to Australia, they did very much still view themselves when they got there as British at that time, oh, absolutely. didn't they? Yeah, definitely. That's something that, that really comes across. Um, I think it was really perhaps only after the, the First World War that that whole sort of concept of Aust- Australian nationalism, sort of national identity, really began to take hold. So the single female migrant scheme... What was it? Okay, well, as I've mentioned, the colonial governments needed women there. They needed women to um, provide their services to domestic servants, and they also needed women there to basically help increase the population. So um, the various different state governments implemented various schemes to basically entice women to go out there. And what they did was that they offered um, a guarantee of a job and they also paid the fare of any woman who would be willing to go out there and work. Oh, wow. So the problem was it was a one-way ticket. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was sort of researching um, the, the story that, that I wrote about in my, in my first book and the story of this lady called um, Sarah Marshall who actually went out on this scheme um, to Queensland in 1886, what I couldn't fathom out was how could she possibly have afforded it but that's when I sort of discovered how the scheme worked and the fact that they actually funded um, 
the fairs of all these women, women to go out there. So basically, genius, the, really, isn't it? It is, yeah. So the plan was basically to import as many women as possible. Now, if you're a poor domestic servant um, in Britain, you know, and you get wind of this scheme, you think, oh god, that you know, that sounds amazing. You can understand why so many uh, women um, signed up for it. Mm. So between sort of about 1860 and right up to 1920, you've got around about 100,000 um, British and, and Irish women signing up for this scheme and going out there. And a very, very few of them ever returned, mainly because they couldn't afford it. They were stuck there. So various different types of schemes were tried with varying success over the years, but corruption was rife. Um, so you had various people setting themselves up as immigration agents and sort of, you know, recruiting people out of workhouses and, you know, prostitutes off the street, etc., which didn't go very down very well with the um, colonial governments when, when, when these girls got out there. So the scheme was sort of streamlined um, over the years. And I would say by the mid-1880s, by the time that, that Sarah Marshall went out there, the scheme was down to a, a fine art. It was really sort of streamlined and efficient. Basically, British and Irish working class women were recruited for domestic service in Australia through this scheme. The affairs were paid for by the um, colonial governments and they were guaranteed a job on arrival. I'm emphasising uh, working class women there because basically sort of your middle class um, spinsters or governesses or ladies companions weren't wanted. What they, the governments wanted out there was hard working, tough women who could basically hit the ground running and who could cope with very hard social and domestic circumstances. And then breed. And then breed. Yeah. So what, what they're doing is they're basically importing an entire working class, which I find just quite staggering, really. It's, it is. It, it's not something that, that I've ever come across. And um, before I, I started researching this story, I think in, in this country, we're largely sort of ignorant of, of, of this scheme. In Australia, everybody knows about it because it's how, you know, their great great grandmas got there of a lot of people. But it, it's largely being forgotten in, you know, in British history. So can you tell us about how these women would have found out about the scheme? You mentioned they're being recruited and some women being sort of grabbed off the street even. And what was the application process like? Okay, so the shipping companies who had the most money to to, to make out of um, the, these schemes, um, in conjunction with the the colonial governments in Australia, um, set up a network of agents right throughout um, the United Kingdom. Now, these agents would go out and give lectures and talks in um, church and village halls and various sort of associations. Um, they would publish articles in newspapers and periodicals. Posters would be put up sort of around towns and villages. And also um, it was spread by, by basically by, by word of mouth. Um, so it's, it's a massive, if you can think about it sort of like a, almost like an army recruitment campaign, you know, think about Lord Kitchener's campaigns, um, you know, we want you, that kind of thing. But it was targeted at, at working class women. Now, the criteria um, by the, the 1880s, which is the period that I was looking at, to qualify for the scheme were extremely stringent. They didn't take anybody because they wanted strong, healthy, working women. Um, they had to sort of impose a, a very sort of tight set of rules and regulations as to who would qualify and who wouldn't. Because there was a lot of demand. If you're thinking about what Britain is like in, in the 1880s, you've got horrendous poverty. You've got, you know, it, it, in your industrial towns and cities, it, it, 
conditions are absolutely terrible. You've got high infant mortality rates. You can understand why it would appeal um, to so many people. Mm. So the process was that basically um, you would send off your application um, in writing to, to one of the local agents or sign up at one of the, the, the recruitment sessions. You would be asked to, rep- uh, to provide two references from your current and past employer. You would have to have a letter from your um, local doctor confirming that you're in good health. And you would also need a character reference from your local religious minister. So, <laughs> yeah, I know it seems bizarre, doesn't it? So if you'd had any um, illegitimate children, you were out of the picture straight away. Likewise, if oh, you were... There goes my great-grandma. Yeah. <laughs> if you were considered to be a bit of a good time girl, you know, a bit fondless, fondness for, um, for drink, etc., out of the picture as well. If you me and Alex out the window. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> we're done. Um, if you'd had any sort of um, major health problems or showed any sort of decisive um, disease or malnourishment, you were out of the picture as well. You would then have to go um, for a medical examination just to make sure that you know that, that you were basically in good health, and not showing any sort of um, signs of, of disease. So yeah, it was very very strict, and lots of girls didn't qualify. But the result for the Australian government was that when the, the girls that did get selected turned up, they've got this sort of strong, healthy workforce just ready to go. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So you've gone through the process. You've been accepted. Everything is ready to rock and roll. You now start your journey to Australia, and it's, it's a very, very long journey. Can you talk us through what actually happened on this journey? Okay. It is a very, very long journey. But by the time that I'm looking at, which is the mid-1880s, you've got steamships. They're just starting to really Mm -hmm. um, take off, which makes a huge difference. And for Sarah Marshall, the the girl um, whose journey I followed in, in my book, there was never a better time for Sarah to go to Australia. You've got um, steamships, which cut the journey time massively. The Suez Canal has just opened, which, you know, automatically cuts three, four thousand miles off, off your journey straight away. And yeah, because you would have to go around the whole of Africa. Yeah, you? you would. Yeah, have to go around the Horn. Now, for the girls that went out in the sort of um, 18, 1860s by sailing ship, it would have taken them about three months to get there. It was absolutely horrendous. By the time that Sarah went out in the 1880s, your journey time is about six to eight weeks. So you've got these steamships who are basically dotting backwards and forwards to Australia, you know, up three, four times a year, um, which 
I found quite incredible. And there are dozens of them going out, you know, taking immigrants um, backwards and forwards. So conditions on board were a lot better than they had been um, on board the on, on board the sailing ship, certainly. Now, the route that Sarah um, and most of the girls would have taken would be um, they would board probably at Gravesend, sometimes in, in Liverpool or Glasgow, but generally it was um, in the south of England and in Gravesend. They would then sail round um, through the channel to the Bay of Biscay and into the Mediterranean, um, at Gibraltar, probably take on coal because obviously these are steamships, so they need to keep stopping every so often to, to, to take on more fuel, and um, probably stop um, at Malta. Then head down um, to um, Suez Canal, um, stopping at um, Port of Aden uh, when they got through. Then they would go on to um, come out into the Indian Ocean and head towards um, Colombo um, in Ceylon, as it was then. Then um, over to um, Jakarta in Indonesia before heading down um, the eastern coast of Australia. Sounds like a gap year. It does, doesn't it? Well, that's <laughs> what I thought. It sounded great. What a brilliant experience for all these girls. However. They weren't allowed off the ship in any of the ports. Oh, that sucks. It's, doesn't it? It was, well, it was basically too dangerous for them. Um, that and I suppose you don't want them running away and picking somewhere better and not getting them arrive in Australia. Exactly. Or frolicking with a man. That oh, is God, the yeah. main, that was the main concern. The shipping companies are paid by per person that they actually land in Australia, live person. So it's in their interest to make sure that everybody is kept safe on the way out. And we all know that as women, we can't control ourselves. Well, exactly. Yeah. These, these women were basically treated, you know, like, like heads of cattle. Like small um, children. Yeah, exactly. So there was very, very strict rules on board the ships as to what they could and couldn't do. And they were very much kept segregated um, from the crew and from any male passengers. They were allowed to mix with, you know, some of the, the families that were travelling. But other than that, you know, they were kept very much um, apart from everybody else. So on board, it was it was a bizarre mix of sort of almost prison-like conditions. But then they were provided with um, lessons and instructions and lectures. They actually had less leisure time with games and entertainment and dancing. And so for many of these girls, it was probably the one and only time they would ever experience anything like a holiday, you know, in, in their lives. Um, so I think that's sort of quite interesting from a from from a social point of view. Now I was actually able to track um, Sarah's journey on her ship, the SS Duke of Sutherland, every day because all the shipping telegrams still exist. So you can actually follow where she was every single day of her journey while while she was going out there. Now the conditions on board the steamships were much better than they being on the sailing ships, which are basically just you know festering vessels of disease and mm -hmm. and infection um although it would still be sort of tough by our standards um that they had, they had basic refrigeration they had fresh water plants on board um it was quite sort of high tech for, for the time really i mean you know it, it's not it's not exactly a cruise line you've got probably around between 500 and 800 people on board I mean, I'm um, guessing they were steerage, but yes, they were the steerage. getting into the era now where shipping companies, that's where they made their money from steerage and immigrants. So they were getting around to the idea of if your steerage accommodation was better than all the other lines, then they'd go with you. Yeah, that's right. And also the conditions had to be better because they had to protect the health of 
of of the girls to to get them out there so that they then would then get paid uh you know for conveying them if you like so it was in everyone's interest for conditions to be better um one of the main problems on board steamships however um was heat stroke you've got particularly if your um sort of cabin or accommodation area is near to the engines and the you know um and and the 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 coal the coaling engines you've got temperatures in excess of 100 degrees now if you're are uh, if you're sailing through the tropics at the time as well the heat on board is absolutely phenomenal so you do get a few people dying of, of heat stroke that, that was probably the main problem at, at that time you've also got the problem of infant mortality you know, you've got lots of families traveling with very small children um, on these ships, as, as well as the girls um, traveling under the scheme. And you've got women giving birth on board ship as well. And even in Sarah's time, um, in, in, in 1886, we've got four infant mortalities on her on, on board her ship on, on, on her journey. Can you imagine what that must have been like for those families who were you know, sailing out to Australia, start a new life and, you know, one or more of your children dies on, on board on, on, the, on the way out. It was a particular problem um, on the on the sailing ships um, sort of 20 years previously. You've got one horrific episode of, of one ship which is going to Australia. I think it was going to Adelaide. Uh, well, it was 75 mortalities on board and the vast majority of those were children. And of course, all these babies will be will be buried at sea. Can you imagine how traumatic that would be? Yeah, the, the, the standard practice is and to the families. Yeah. I know it's done in a service, and that is, but it's, you've lost your child, and it gets chucked off the side of the boat. Yeah, in, in the captain's log, um, which I've, I've managed to to recover for this particular journey, um, you've got um, sort of a, a record next to the, to the child passenger's name saying died on voyage, buried at sea, and that's all it says. You know, and that's just so brutal, isn't it? Anyway, so yeah, um, it wasn't a picnic by any stretch of the imagination, but conditions certainly were better by this time than they had been. I have to ask, so you've mentioned Sarah, but can you Mm -hmm. just give us a snapshot of some of the women you've discovered making this journey? Yeah, they they were from all over Britain. Um, The vast majority of them were, I would say, in their late teens or early 20s, and many of them would have have had already lost one parent or both parents so these are quite often women who have no other sort of um source of of income if you like they're completely on their own or they are women who are from perhaps large families who with lots of younger brothers and sisters and who the parents you know can't afford to to basically to, to keep them as well and so they're dispatched off to australia that was what happened in, in, in Sarah's case. Um, she was the eldest of like, seven girls. Her father had died um, when her younger sister was just a baby, leaving a mother basically destitute with all, of these, with all of these girls. She and a couple of her sisters had gone into domestic service and the rest of them were sort of spread out between various different relatives to avoid the workhouse. Um, and that's, that's a, a common pattern. So you can see girls who are perhaps on their own, who don't have anything else left for them in Britain, who are heading out to Australia and um, to start new life, basically, to try and, you know, improve their situation. So we've talked about the process of the scheme. We've talked about the journey to Australia. The next logical step is the ship arrives at port. What would happen to these women when they arrived at, in Australia? 
Okay, so they will be disembarked um, from the main port onto a paddle steamer to take them upriver to their, their sort of main destination. The place that I looked at was was Brisbane in particular, but I mean it was much the same whether you're in Sydney, whether you're in Adelaide, whether you're in Melbourne, or whatever. Um, same sort of process in each of the in each of the cities. Um, so they'll be disembarked um, at one of the um, immigration depots. Um, in Sarah's particular case, it was um, at Kangaroo Point in Brisbane. There they'll be put into um, dormitories, registered and basically processed. And they'll be then taken to um, the labour exchange um, to find jobs or some, in some cases, recruiters would actually come directly to the depot and recruit the girls there. So within a few days, they'd be taken off to their new employers. Now, employers came in all sorts of um, shapes and sizes. They could be taken into uh, individual families. They could be taken into um, sort of hotels and commercial establishment, establishments. They could be taken much further afield onto, um, you know, the, the, the farms and, and the sheep stations in very, very remote areas. So it was basically look at the draw, you know, whatever you managed, whatever work you managed to find. At Sarah's time, when Sarah arrived um, in at the end of December 1887, 1886, sorry, there was a massive demand um, for domestic service. Brisbane was at sort of at the height of its powers, so she found absolutely no problem finding a job immediately. But imagine what it was like sort of t- pitching up in, in a strange country, in a strange city, by yourself. Some of these girls were as young as 14 and 15, and they're extremely vulnerable. I don't know what Sarah was, would have been expecting when she pitched up in Brisbane, but I suspect it wasn't what she actually found when she got there. Brisbane at, at, at this time was basically like a building site. It certainly wasn't the, the tropical paradise that she <laughs> that she'd been expecting and that the recruitment agents back home had you know had portrayed. Um, if you think of, of Brisbane sort of in the 1880s as any other. Victorian city, if you like. Um, there's massive amounts of industry going on. There's massive amounts of construction. There's railways going on. There's huge amounts of money flooding into into the city. There's ports, there's docks, there's every kind of industry you, you can think of is going on. So if you think of your modern um, Victorian cities back home in Britain, so say Middlesbrough or, or Manchester or somewhere like that, with your, your grand civic buildings being built, this is what Brisbane is like. In the 1880s, you know, we tend to think of it being a sort of a some sleepy colonial backwater, you know, with lots of palm trees or whatever in a lovely climate. It wasn't like that at all. And in fact, when Sarah got there within three or four weeks, um, Brisbane was hit by a massive cyclone and, you know, about 400 people drowned. So imagine how traumatic it would have been for these girls sort of turning up in a completely strange country, completely alone, um, in a completely different climate. Uh, completely different social circumstances. It must have been so frightening for them. Yeah, it would have been, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm guessing there's a huge range of experience. Um, but can you tell us what these women found? I mean, some probably found a great life, and others it was probably a nightmare. I'm guessing. Yes. Well, the vast majority of them did find work, and straight away, as I've mentioned, there was a huge demand for their services. Um, Sarah was lucky, but she arrived during um, during the boomtown, if you like. Um, but if you arrived um, when things weren't going so bad, 
going so well, you were going to struggle. Sarah was one of around 3,000 domestic servants in Brisbane in 1887. The vast majority of them were sort of, you know, in full employment. And the vast majority of them did go on, you know, to, to settle and, and to marry and have, you know, perfectly happy lives. And there were huge numbers of um, immigrants pouring into uh, to Brisbane and um, to Australia at this time. In the year that Sarah arrived, there was 10,630 immigrants had arrived in that city at that time. And there were nearly 80,000 entered Brisbane between 1880 and 1890. So although there was plenty of work available, what the girls did face was a lot of hostility from the sort of already established population. There was a lot of anti-immigration feeling to, towards um, immigrants in general, but particularly towards um, all, all these young girls. Um, a lot of them were sort of viewed as, as no better than, you know, sort of common prostitutes. And the many of the girls who were working as domestic servants, the local Australian population referred to them as slaveries, which basically sums up you know, how they were thought of and what their role in, in society was. And many of the girls worked in incredibly difficult, um, you know, conditions. Uh, there was accounts of them, you know, being made to sleep in stables. That's certainly not the case for all of them. Um, you know, lots of them did find um, secure positions with, with families and, you know, it were perfectly happy in their work. But there was a huge breadth of experiences, I think. And again, as had been back in, in, situation back in the UK the only way out for many of them was um was marriage that was the only way they were going to improve their situation I wonder if that will improve my situation now if I got married <laughs> I wouldn't count on it <laughs> someone else might occasionally bathe the dog but beyond that yeah I need a man to mow the lawn and clean the car anybody <laughs> out there <laughs> yeah. oh yeah I just need one because getting on the property ladder is impossible unless you are part of a pair agreed Romantics, both of us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, yeah. Do you think the scheme was successful? Well, I think in terms of its aims, yes, it most certainly was. It serviced the demand for domestic servants, and ultimately it did help to, uh, to boost and increase the population. I'm not sure what sort of view that the girls themselves would have taken of that, because there's no question that many of them were exploited. But at the same time, you know, they, they did choose to go there. And I think probably a lot of them did, you know, have very, ultimately, very happy lives in, in, the, in the new surroundings. It's funny that everybody knows about the scheme in Australia, but because it's how they, you know, their great grandmas got there, but nobody knows about it here. Jane, thank you so much for joining us and filling this gap that we've desperately needed on our podcast, talking about migration to Australia, especially about this single female migrant scheme that finally, at this end, we know something about. So thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, I love it. I think they were brave, no matter what their motivations were, sort of just cutting and going 13,000 miles. And it's, it's good that we've been able to tell their story a little bit. Yeah, incredibly so. I mean, these girls are never going to see their families again. And that takes a lot of guts. Tell everybody about the projects you were working on that led you to this story and the book. Okay, my book is called The Horsekeeper's Daughter, and it's the true story of, of Sarah Marshall, who I've mentioned briefly, um, who travels from the mining villages of County Durham um, in the 1880s to start a new life in Queensland. Outstanding. I'm going to run off and buy a copy now. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Join us tomorrow when Nick Kaiser will be with us to talk all about the naval side of the War of 1812. It's a really interesting chat, so don't miss it. And then join us down the pub where after the insanity of last week with history's greatest sexcapade, we tone it down only marginally to look for history's most scandalous woman. Haven't really put an exact definition on scandalous, so it'll be interesting to see what comes up, so don't miss that. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 